Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined as ever by my colleague CJ McKinney. This month we are going over the events of August 2021. We're beginning with some stuff on EU citizens' rights, um, which is some good news, I'm happy to say, um, before moving on to a couple of cases on um, the European Convention of Human Rights. Uh, we've got some asylum things to cover, including a rather disappointing and, and quite frankly worrying for the future Supreme Court decision on age assessment, um, and then the latest exciting news about immigration appeals. And before I hand over to you, CJ, there's a couple quite interesting cases actually this month. We were just sort of talking about this before we got started. Um, might have some long-term sort of ramifications or a little glimpse of the future, perhaps, of, of, of directions the law might go in. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that as we, as we go. So, CJ, over to you. A teaser there, I love it. We'll start, as you say, with that good news on EU citizens' rights. There was an announcement that came near the beginning of August. People who applied late to the EU settlement scheme will have their day-to-day rights protected while their application is pending. It was always the case that you could apply late, so after the 30th of June just gone, and still get settled status despite missing the deadline. And it was always the case that if you applied on time and the decision on your application was pending beyond the 30th of June, your right to work and use the NHS and things like that would be protected in the meantime. But what they've now said is that you get the same protections during a pending application, even if you apply late after the 30th of June, which is good. Uh, They could have said that all along uh, instead of waiting until five weeks after the deadline to kind of give people these more extensive protections. And I think, Colin, you've argued in the past that legally speaking, they were obliged to do that anyway. Yeah, I, I, I was really sort of getting into this for um, an opinion that I was doing for for someone a while back. And um, and I think that it's fair to say there are arguments both ways and the terms of the withdrawal agreement perhaps weren't crystal clear. But the UK was picking this slightly bizarre argument about basically making life really difficult for EU citizens when it didn't have to. It's like, well, why would you why would you adopt that sort of really strict, arguably unnecessary legal position and basically leave people pretty badly screwed by by your policy? Um so I, I don't know what's been going on in the background in the background here. I imagine there's been negotiations between the UK and the EU on this. Um and as you say, it's it's better to late late than never. And it's a shame that the UK was adopting such a hardline position prior to this, but at least they've changed their position now. And this this is good news. Do we have a sense of whether people who do apply late, do have these pending applications, are actually running into any problems? Or like, are these protections that they've announced happening on the ground? Like, I feel like we haven't heard many horror stories in the media, you know, touch wood of people who are supposed to be protected being, you know, fired or denied hospital treatment. Would you agree as it seems to be going all right? Yeah, I know, certainly the lack of stories in the press suggests that it might be. But and the, the kind of people who are affected by this are kind of a bit below the radar anyway. We're talking about people who don't perhaps speak English terribly well. They're from sort of minorities. Um, and there's always been a concern that they, they'd have problems which just wouldn't be that obvious to begin with and would come out over sort of many years. And this, the, the, the way the government is implementing this policy seems pretty mysterious. I don't think we've heard anything about how it's being implemented in law. So the suspicion is that they're just sort of changing their guidance so that people are nice, even though they don't need to be, uh, which is a pretty weak legal position to be in. And of course, it's also important to say that 
this only applies to people who've actually made an application. But it does mean that, you know, I'm obviously mainly be lawyers, I, I think, who are listening to, to this podcast. It does mean that there's a simple solution for an EU citizen who is suffering the hostile environment and hasn't made an application, which is to make the application. And once they've done that, then they should be okay. The, the guidance hopefully will be enough to persuade employers, landlords, doctors, hospitals, whatever, to sort of to, to, to be nice to them, essentially, even though certainly, as I understand it at the moment, the strict letter of the law means that actually they're not legally protected. And it's this kind of, we've seen this with the coronavirus stuff as well. It's kind of the government insists on making quasi law by policy and guidance rather than actual concrete laws that actually have proper legal effect that you know, lawyers are comfortable with. Um, it's, it's, it's not a great way of governing. While we're talking about EU citizens, there's been a court of appeal decision about EU nationals trying to claim asylum. The immigration rules say that asylum claims from EU citizens are inadmissible, uh, thrown out before consideration on the merits, unless there are exceptional circumstances. Now, in practice, that seems to mean it's practically impossible to claim asylum as an EU citizen, as illustrated by the facts of this case. It involved a Lithuanian lady who had been trafficked to the UK. She was forced to work as a prostitute, encouraged to use heroin. She escaped to Lithuania once. She was found, raped, re-trafficked, a horrible set of facts. Eventually, she made it into the UK trafficking system and tried to claim asylum. And the Court of Appeal said no, the authorities in Lithuania could have protected her if she'd asked when she went back. So... I think the case really emphasizes, and you may have other views on, on what it says, but my takeaway was that it really takes extreme facts to get over this admissibility hurdle for EU citizens. And the case is ZV Lithuania 2021 EWCA Civ 1196. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a really um, it's really bad news. Uh, I, not just for EU citizens either. I think it's, this is a I start with the EU citizens first, though. So this is, yeah, I think you explained the background in the post about what's called the Spanish protocol, this kind of um, legal assumption that EU citizens aren't persecuted and can be protected. So you sort of fail at both hurdles of the, the refugee definition, so to speak. And that can have, you know, there's, there's no legal basis for disapplying the refugee convention which is what that that does essentially so you know in international law that's extremely suspect and it's not a good faith implementation of the refugee convention and then you can see why when when you have facts like this where somebody was trafficked to the uk and horribly persecuted twice um but the the interesting thing that i think goes beyond the EU citizens is that this is the kind of inevitable outcome of the Horvath approach to sufficiency of protection. And this idea that the Refugee Convention is a surrogate protective instrument in international law, and then that leads some people, not 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 everybody, to say, well, what's the standard of protection you'd expect at home? Is your state doing enough? Is it sufficient protection? And rather than, is there a well-founded fear of persecution? And if you follow that kind of sufficiency of protection approach from Horvath, then you end up with this absolutely absurd, perverse, horrible position where somebody who has literally been horribly persecuted twice, there's still this like hypothetical sufficiency of protection and therefore they lose their asylum claim. So it, it's, and it's bad news for EU citizens. And it's, you know, the, this, it highlights the problems with the whole Spanish protocol and the kind of unilateral opt out by the EU, all EU countries from the Refugee Convention for each other's citizens. But it also highlights this problem with sufficiency of protection as a concept where, you know, that she obviously has a well-founded fear of persecution. It actually happened to her twice. 
and yet still she's not a refugee somehow. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting case from that point of view. Human rights then, there's been another interesting case from the upper tribunal, this time on the scope of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Regular listeners will know that Article 3 is about protection from inhuman or degrading treatment, and migrants have sometimes, in perhaps rare cases, been able to rely on Article 3 to resist removal from the UK if they're very seriously ill, um, especially since the Supreme Court decision in AM Zimbabwe last year. We now have a decision saying that the lower legal test for relying on Article 3 that's come in post-AM Zimbabwe, that lower test also applies to cases of extreme material deprivation. So not just medical treatment cases, but if you're being removed into total destitution, potentially, you might have an Article 3 argument. The test, as in the medical treatment cases, is whether there is a real risk of, quote, intense suffering or a significant reduction in life expectancy, end quote. So uh, more human rights protection, potentially, uh, for people arising from this case. It is called AINTE, A-I-N-T-E, Material Deprivation, Article 3, AM Zimbabwe, 2021, UK, UT 203, IAC. I think this is a really interesting case. It's it's only a tribunal level decision. Um, so it's not like a, a particularly high level authority yet, but we're very likely to see exactly the same issues being decided at a higher level by the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court, European Court of um, Human Rights, and, and the Court of Justice of the European Union as well, where they've all been grappling with these issues of refoulement under human rights um, provisions and the the extent of the protection of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And you've got other international courts grappling with the same issues with the, the equivalent to Article 3 and other international instruments as well. And you've got this kind of really interesting sort of diverging, not terribly logical kind of sequence of cases where they're applying different standards or different sort of approaches to different types of Article 3 ill treatment, depending on whether it's deliberate, depending on whether it arises out of a, an armed conflict and so on. And um, Tamor Lay, who, who wrote this one up, has done a really good job of very briefly, very briefly, but very accurately explaining some of that uh, as kind of background. I, that's, he's, he's written it in a very, very nice way, actually. And this isn't the last, I think, we're, we're going to see on this issue. So it, it's a really interesting tribunal decision, quite progressive, I, arguably inevitable since the kind of change from the NUK standard to the Papishvili standard. Um, but um, but yeah, really interesting. And as he says at the end of his post, um, unfortunately, it didn't avail the appellant in this particular case. So it, it definitely progressive on the law. But um, as he says, you know, if, if you're going to apply a really high evidential standard um, for, for, for establishing what's necessary, then it's not necessarily going to assist people in practice. Um, and as he also flags up before we sort of move on to the next case, um, there is a new Somali um, country guidance case due out where this is likely to be um, a relevant issue as well. So, so we'll watch out for that. Also on Article 3, it is a breach of said article to leave an immigration detainee without his daily HIV medication for several days running. Uh, in this case, the claimant's doctor told the High Court that his patient has to take the medication at exactly the same time every day. If he has any interruption to his treatment, his immune system may become severely depressed and it would place him at risk of severe opportunity infections and death. 
in the events, it was three or four days that uh, this chap was left without his medication, uh, thanks to Home Office immigration officials. Um, not that he did suffer any harm in the end, thankfully, that we know of. Uh, but Mr. Justice Bourne found that the Home Office was nevertheless in breach of its systems duty under Article 3. In other words, the state should have a system for making sure people in its custody get their HIV meds and don't avoidably die. That case, RCSM and Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2021 EWHC 2175 admin. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a quite a revealing case, I suppose, on the facts. You know, the 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 people who are responsible for the welfare of detainees just don't sometimes, often, frankly, seem to take it their duties very seriously. You know, they they sort of really mess up in 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 fairly basic situations where you know somebody's on medication. They obviously they need it. Um, from a legal point of view, I, I have to say I do wonder whether this judgment would survive the next case that we're going to look at from the Supreme Court, because you know that kind of idea of a systems duty and so on is is really undermined uh, by the Supreme Court in, in the next case. So let's move on to that one. Yeah, this was a Supreme Court decision on age assessment. So this is where asylum seekers claiming to be under 18 are examined to see if they actually are children. It's an inexact science because human beings are not like trees. There are no age rings. Home office policy is that when it comes to an initial age assessment, when someone first enters the asylum system, I suppose, uh, someone can be treated as an adult if two immigration officers uh, reckon that their physical appearance and demeanor very strongly suggests that they are significantly over 18 years of age and there's little or no supporting evidence for their claimed age. So there was a challenge to that policy as being sort of too strict on uh, migrants claiming to be under 18, I guess. Uh, that succeeded in the Court of Appeal by two to one. But the Supreme Court said that the policy is fine and that if people end up being wrongly treated as, as adults as a result of that policy, then it's not the policy's fault. Uh, the case is BF Eritrea 2021 UKSC 38. Uh, and Colin, what's the sort of link back to that last case? So the the Supreme, I and mean, it's a bad decision, well, no, not bad decision. It's a bad outcome, shall we say, for um, for kids, basically, because while the Supreme Court says they can still bring an individual challenge if they are wrongly assessed for age, um, it says that basically, you know, that, that you can't challenge the policy behind those assessments. And that that's really quite problematic in the present day immigration policy context, where you've got a home sector in a government and a department that are really pushing the boundaries of lawfulness on on multiple fronts and you know that the mentality seems to be if you're not getting sued you're doing it wrong and that's that that was a I'm paraphrasing slightly that was a line from a recent inspection report I think wasn't it and things like the um the, the, the parallel that immediately comes to mind with this is that the Napier barracks litigation um was it Napier or Penale? I think the, the litigation was actually over Penale, in fact. But um, you know, you've got lawyers who are being confronted with people being detained in obviously really bad um, conditions, where it's happening over and over again. You can get individuals out, but that's not stopping the Home Office from putting more individuals into it and exposing them afresh to the same kind of um, abusive conditions. And, um, you know, whether you can actually sort of challenge that on a generic basis or not. And this case from the Supreme Court does make it apparently quite difficult to bring those kinds of challenges to to policy 
rather than um, in individual cases. So this this is quite a significant case for immigration lawyers who are, who are bringing those kinds of challenges. And um, and it's not good news. So I, know, I think it's early days to sort of say it's it's impossible and so on. But um, certainly this is um, this is something that we're all going to have to digest and, and process. Sticking with asylum, uh, interesting report from Australia. They have had a notorious policy of sending asylum seekers who try to arrive by sea uh, off to remote islands there to rot as a warning to others. Some experts at the University of New South Wales have looked into this policy and they found no evidence of a deterrent effect or anything else positive about it. It, uh, on the other hand, is wildly expensive and extraordinarily cruel. One quote from the report, medical experts found the rates of mental illness offshore to be among the highest recorded in any surveyed population. Many similar quotes. What I didn't realize about this policy was that the system isn't like a permanent feature of Australian asylum policy. Like it's very well known, but in fact, the report points out it was in place between 2001 and 2008, then abandoned, then briefly resurrected only between 2012 and 2014. And there have been no new detainees since then. So successive Australian governments have discovered that this policy is way more trouble than it's worth. Any lessons from that experience for us in the UK, do we think? Oh, <laughs> not sure we're willing to learn them. Um, you know, it, it's kind of, it sounds great, apparently, when people start talking about kind of Australian style stuff in, in the context of immigration and refugee policy. And, um, you know, and it's quite, it's, it's an interesting report because there's been a lot of different strands to Australian policy. And um, I think this report draws a distinction between the kind of, interception or interdiction as it's sometimes called where you literally physically intercept them and and take them somewhere else which self-evidently works in the sense that it stops them from you know reaching Australia so it works in that sense and the kind of removing somebody once they've actually arrived in Australia as a deterrent um, to, to, to prevent other people from doing the same and there's just no evidence that the deterrent policy works on its own terms at all or puts people off arriving but it does have really awful consequences for those that you you do it to so you know I, it's how far this is kind of about performing politics for the sake of um you know public opinion and how far it's about an actual you know serious immigration policy uh, it's i think open to open to doubt but it's certainly it's certainly an interesting report and um certainly we it'd be nice if if the home office you know pretty patel senior civil servants did actually sort of learn some lessons from from how badly things have gone in australia and what's worked and what hasn't on on their own terms a quick note then to say there's a new home office policy on medical evidence in asylum claims it is called uh, medical evidence in asylum claims, funnily enough, uh, dated the 5th of August. And it says, uh, among other things, that all sorts of medical evidence can support an asylum claim. It doesn't have to be a full-on medical legal report. GPs, for example, can speak to mental illness. So some useful stuff in there. And Jennifer Blair has done a short summary of this new policy, which is on the website. Finally, on asylum, an interesting case on costs. There is a fancy law firm called Farrers. They were in a dispute with a former client over their bill for work on her asylum claim. She was a businesswoman from Azerbaijan who sought political asylum. She came to Farrers in quite a panic and they agreed a 
sort of all singing, all dancing service, charged it up to 600 pounds an hour, 20 grand for advice from a QC, 20 grand for an expert report. He eventually seems to have dropped them and gone to a smaller, uh, cheaper firm, but not before racking up charges and disbursements of £194,000, which on the face of it, it might sound extortionate, but the cost judge in the high court does a good job of unpacking this. And he, he found it was all above board. She was a sophisticated, wealthy client who wanted no stone left unturned. City law firms routinely charge an arm and a leg to high net worth individuals. And the fact that the context of this work was for asylum didn't make a difference to what's appropriate to, to charge in that context. So an interesting glimpse into the rarefied world of elite asylum claims, I suppose. The citation Farrer and Co. versus Yurtayeva, 2021 EWHC B16 costs. Yeah, puts my £300 I get for doing an asylum case on legal aid, um, you know, for all of the prep and the whole day of attendance um, into, <laughs> into perspective, that, doesn't it? Um, and um, I, I thought it was interesting what the cost judge said about there being uh, no one-size-fits-all for asylum cases. I was like, well, that's pretty much the opposite of what the Legal Services Commission says, or not this. God, that's misspeaking. It's not the Legal Services Commission. It's the Legal Aid Agency now, isn't it? But um, yeah, yeah. I- interesting from, um, interesting, yes. Appeals law, finally, there's been another important case on Section 3C leave. This is where someone's permission to be in the UK is automatically extended if they have a pending extension application or appeal. It's a very important concept, and this case was about, well, what happens if you appeal late? You appeal out of time, and the immigration tribunal agrees to hear the appeal. Do you have Section 3C leave then? And if so, at what point does it revive? Now, Colin, I haven't read this case because I was on holiday at that time, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the gist of the finding seems to be that Section 3C leave can be revived in the context of a late appeal. So once you lodge your late appeal, the courts agrees to take it on. You then have Section 3C leave backdated to the date you lodged the appeal, but not covering any gap in leave before that. So say you were refused permission to remain on the 1st of January, you lodge an out-of-time appeal on the 1st of June, you would no leave between those dates, but you do from the 1st of June if your appeal is later taken up by the tribunal. Yes, that's a good summary. And yeah, it revives on the day the appeal was lodged if the extension of time is later granted. So there is some sort of retrospectivity, that's not the right word, retroactive, I don't know, I don't know, backwards looking anyway, uh, if effect. So you wouldn't know at the time that you lodged the appeal that actually you're lawfully resident, but it will turn out later that you you were, but only for that period, not for the period before the um, before the appeal was lodged. And that being an important case, it would help if we gave the citation Akinola and another versus Upper Tribunal and another 2021 EWCA Civ 1308. Also in appeals law, the Upper Tribunal has done a U-turn on the issue of consent to raise a new matter on appeal. Basically, the Home Office has to give permission for migrants to argue a new issue in the first-tier tribunal if they had never put it to immigration officials previously. Senior judges had previously ruled that this requirement for permission did not apply in the upper tribunal, only in the first tier. But now the same judges, President Lane and Vice President Ockleton, have accepted that they were wrong to find that because there is a binding court of appeal judgment saying that permission is still required in the upper tribunal. So they've had to overrule themselves on that point. 
the case Haidar, Section 120 Response, Section 85 New Matter, Birch, 2021 UK UT 176 IAC. Yeah, this might not be the last we hear of this because the um, certainly the tribunal judges are pretty sure they're right, but um, but but they and I think the court of appeal is wrong, but they have to follow the court of appeal um, judgment. That's how the kind of common law system works. So I think we may well find that the court of appeal um, ends up making a new decision on this, possibly reiterating what they've already said, but possibly um, changing their mind about it. Finally, then another upper tribunal case this time on anonymity in immigration appeals. This involved a chap from Albania who was convicted of murder in that country before, it seems, escaping from prison and moving to the UK. He was found and extradited back in 2009, but then in 2017, the son reported that he was back and running a car wash in the Leicestershire town of Oadby. He was then sort of rumbled and, and the Home Office sought to deport him. He appealed and failed. We actually discussed his appeal on episode 78 of this podcast last year, but the case was then anonymized as SC. What's now happened is that the Sun is still following this story and they went to the tribunal to get the anonymity order in that deportation appeal set aside so that they could report the case. They succeeded in that attempt. So SC is Salami Kogaj. And the tribunal ruled that his among other things, that his family's distress about the story being reported did not outweigh the freedom of the press. But it seems pretty clear, at least to me, that anonymity should never have been imposed in the first place. And I think you were saying, Colin, that judges can be a little bit trigger happy in removing people's names from judgments when there's no compelling reason to. Yeah, I've I've had experience that. And it's something I wouldn't normally notice, to be honest, because um, when you're representing an appellant who doesn't really want their story told in public, then you know you're quite relaxed if uh, if an anonymity order is imposed. You know, you're representing that that person, and they're happy about that situation. So it's not something that you're sort of thinking about challenging and so on. I mean, I had I had one experience where I had a journalist with me at court all day. Um, you know, <laughs> sitting there at the back of court, the judge knew that, but then imposed a. a an anonymity an anonymity order anyway, even though we hadn't asked for it and obviously wanted the case reported. I think it was actually just done as a reflex reaction in that case. That's a few years back, but getting it lifted was a right pain afterwards, and you know solicitors had to be instructed and stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's good to see the tribunal making it a bit more sort of clear what your way forward is, where that needs to happen, but. What I think I'd rather see from a kind of open justice point of view is the tribunal being systemically more cautious about imposing these in the first place. And I sort of I find myself a bit reluctant to say that because you know, as an as an appellant's representative, usually that's not necessarily what they want. But you know, there are there are competing issues here as well. And um, you know, if we if we all embrace the principle of open justice, as I think we should, then. I think it follows that the tribunal should be a bit more reluctant to impose anonymity orders or to apply anonymity orders in quite as many cases as they do at the moment. Just two final points for me on this case. One important, one flippant. Uh, the important one is that the case citation is Kokaj Anonymity Orders, Jurisdiction and Ambit Albania, 2021 UKUT 
202 IAC. Uh, secondly, it, it seems in the judgment that after the son had pursued this case for years, they went to the tribunal to get the anonymity order lifted, paid money to solicitors, presumably they won. Then they waited seven months for the an- anonymity order to actually be lifted once all the appeals had f- finalized and so on. Uh, and then the Home Office gave the story that Mr. Kokaj had actually been deported to the mail on Sunday. So that's hard luck for the sun, I think. And that's a, a cheering note to end on. Um, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Anyway, that's it from us for this month. We'll be back next month and we hope that's been helpful. Goodbye. <laughs>